You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again for another episode of Amphibicast. Tonight's episode I've been looking forward to for quite some time because tonight my guest is Dr. Andrew Logan, and he is a vet that specializes in amphibian veterinary medicine. And it's been a topic that I've been really, really looking forward to addressing on the show. I know it's something that a lot of listeners had reached out to me and asked. And I was able to get in touch with Dr. Logan. And he graciously agreed to come on the show and talk about some of the unique issues that face amphibians, some common conditions, and just some things that we can address uh, you know, in a captive setting. So let's get right into it because I don't want to waste any time. So, uh, Andrew, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I've been... We've been going back and forth with the emails for a little bit, and I'm really glad that we finally got some time to get together. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. It's a pleasure, and I'm just trying to get it out there and let it be known that there's some veterinarians that are willing and able to help with the amphibian hobby, um, whether it's in zoos or captive collections. So thank you so much for inviting me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. There's definitely been a lack of veterinary expertise out there when it comes to amphibians and I think that a lot of people tend to group amphibians with reptiles, even though the issues that they face can be similar, but at the same time, it's just so dramatically different. But I'll, I'll let you get into all that. So, you know, why don't we start out at the beginning? Now, you're a veterinarian, but how did you start your fascination out with animals and what ultimately led you to a career in veterinary medicine that also focuses on amphibian medicine? So... To be honest, my family loves to joke that I came out of the the womb just obsessed with animals. Since I was a young kid, I kept a bunch of birds, uh, some reptiles. I had a lot of frogs as a kid. I'd go out into nature and just get tadpoles with my dad, and then we'd raise them. And so my family likes to joke that I ended up doing what I was born to do. And so I didn't choose veterinary medicine. It kind of chose me. I was lucky enough to have a mentor by the name of Dave Innes, who worked at a cat practice by my house in San Francisco. And he invited me out there to kind of come join him and work when I was in high school. The funny thing being, I wasn't really a big fan of cats, but he kind of pushed me into the veterinary profession. And so from that point forward, I just thought I'm going to be a veterinarian, but I'm going to see what I want to see. I'm going to see exotics. I'm going to see frogs, some birds, some small rodents, some hedgehogs, things like that. And then the frog hobby found me in my early 20s. And I just thought, nobody is here that knows what to do with amphibian medicine. Why don't I be the person that can help the hobbyists out and kind of build the veterinary world um, for frog hobbyists? I mean, we're definitely thankful that you took the initiative because I don't think that there's too many other people out there doing it. <laughs> Not, no, I, there's a couple. There's a uh, Walter Merker, who's a good buddy of mine. He's an exotics vet in Tucson. And then we also have Dr. Robert Ozaboff, who's a pathologist, clinical pathologist and histopathologist out at University of Florida Veterinary School. And he's a huge frog hobbyist. He has some glass frogs from me. Uh, he does a lot of histopath for the people in the hobby to determine whether it's chytrid or an infection that caused their frogs to die. So those two are kind of the other two people in our hobby that I know that are doing this. Now you have a consulting business. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about that and just some of the services that you provide, because you actually will advise 
zoos and people with large collections in terms of husbandry and, and medical issues, correct? Yeah, and so this actually kind of came about during the pandemic. Uh, my fiance is an aquatics and marine mammal veterinarian. And so I had to move from a job that I thought I'd be at forever um, to help her pursue her dreams. And I thought, I'm looking for a job during a pandemic. What do I really want to do? And I thought, well, I'd love to work with frogs um, just because I've always been kind of huge on their medicine. And as a huge hobbyist, I thought, why don't I create something that people can come to me to help them with their frogs, whether it's a zoo so I can go fly to a zoo and help them. If they're having massive die-offs, things like that. But I thought, why don't I try and live out my dreams by helping her pursue her dreams? And so that's how it came about. She kind of pushed me to do what I truly love. And I thought, I'm going to make a website. I'm going to see what I can do to get known because there's no one else doing this. And so I was lucky that the pandemic kind of pushed me in this direction where I had to kind of leave my comfort zone of being a small animal veterinarian and think, what can I do different to make myself happy during a pandemic and help other people out too? Just because we don't really have any resources out there of veterinarians who know anything about frogs or other amphibians. The irony is you think that everyone would have a very basic rudimentary understanding just from dissecting frogs in biology class what do you think but now we have glass frogs around or people probably won't do that again but uh no i i will bring it up later but i joke that every time we were supposed to talk about frogs in vet school they just glanced over and really didn't mention anything and i would look distraught the whole time because i was really excited to actually learn something about frogs but most vets don't know much at all about amphibians do you think that it's ironic that frogs are often used as a model organism, like such as some of like the, the, the Xenopus species, and there still is very, very little understanding in the way of veterinary care for them? Well, I think what happens is vets learn what they're taught, but there's also not a lot of veterinarians who, I hate to say this, care too much about amphibians. Uh, zoo vets know a good deal amount about amphibian medicine, but there's just not a lot of kind of a push, whether it's financial or just an interest-based push to actually learn about amphibian medicine. Now, reptiles, they're a lot more common. You have snakes, you have lizards that are kept as pets. I still like to think that we don't know as much about them as we should, unless you kind of go into focusing on them, but we still at least learn more about their care throughout vet school than we would about amphibians and it's just it's one of those things where it's not a common species uh, that most people have but that's changing the kind of indoor plant world is changing people are getting a lot more excited about terrariums vivariums where i could see frogs becoming a lot more popular as pets which would mean people are going to have sick frogs because they're not going to know how to care for them properly where a vet should know what to do if they come into their clinic. That is definitely a good point. And it's interesting because you'll have exotic vets. And th this is obviously not to meant to be, you know, a, a criticism yeah. of veterinary yeah. medicine. But there are exotic vets. And where I live, there, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of vets. And there's only a few exotic vets. And not many of them have a tremendous amount of experience treating amphibians that they're familiar with them. But I, I 
did reach out to a couple of people and uh, a lot of them just said, well, look, uh, you know, I have more experience dealing with reptiles and very little with amphibians just because it really composes almost nothing when it comes to my practice. So if you're seeing one amphibian patient a year, I can totally understand why it wouldn't necessarily justify, you know, you're not going to build a whole practice about around one patient. Yeah. And I, I don't think you can, um, make a living off of amphibian medicine. I'm lucky enough that I found a job up here in Northern Washington when I moved up here from California that sees exotics. And so I've seen a lot of reptiles and birds a lot more than I had before, which is great, but I've only seen one frog at this practice because they're just not common. And it was a, it was a pet from a pet store that they thought was sick, but I, it was just doing normal frog behavior. So it's just there's not a lot of a lot of kind of patients coming in for you to see and get kind of a good um, knowledge of the medicine because you're just not seeing enough of them. Now that being said, I've been on Facebook, on Dendroboard, all those kind of forums, and so you see all these issues coming up throughout the United States with people keeping dendrobatids and tree frogs. Where I thought, hey, if I can help a vet out or some hobbyist out uh, legally then why don't I help? I can be that resource where the veterinarian calls me to kind of see what they would do or what I would do to help the the pet out. And so I don't think you're going to get enough of a practice in one location where you need to be kind of more throughout the U.S. consulting with others. There definitely is the need out there. If you, I, I mean, again, I know I, I'm not active on Denver boards, but there are a lot of posts about medical issues there are, you know, my, my frog is sick, you know, and people will give a description and obviously other people will try to offer their input as best as they can. But the need is there. It just doesn't seem to be, you know, like you said, it's you, you, obviously you can't build a whole practice around it, but the veterinary issues seem to be there. And whether or not those are a lot of just beginner errors or the quality of the animals that have been acquired, I mean, that's all a part of it as well. But, um, what are some common issues that you see, or at least in your experiences, that, that amphibian patients present with? Like, what are some common complaints that people come to you with? So I think the most common thing we see is just poor husbandry. Um, with frogs and most exotics, about 90% of the medical issues are secondary to poor husbandry. And so that could be they acquired the frogs from someone who hadn't kind of taken good care of them things like that. But usually the poor husbandry is what's caused the medical issue. If you're not quarantining your pet like for 30 days when you get a good group of frogs and then you just throw it into a tank, it might die just because you haven't looked out for those health issues that you're not going to see right away. But uh, the most common thing I've seen is bacterial infections because a lot of us tend to keep our tanks a little bit too moist with poor airflow. And so bacterial infections and fungal infections are probably the most common. The other ones I've seen are kind of uh, cloacal prolapse, things like that. And then trauma. They can kind of rub their nose on a bromeliad that's a little bit too sharp, things like that, which can lead to kind of a bacterial infection just because the skin is open and exposed. But the most common thing I've seen is just poor husbandry resulting in some kind of systemic disease or illness just because the frog's not being kept the way that it should be. 
what's interesting is I can pick out three, well, not necessarily species, but three groups that seem to, each one seems to have that, those issues. And, you know, as far as the, 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 the rostral abrasions are like, you know, the, the nose, um, mm-hmm. um, I've seen that with tree frogs, especially white tree frogs. The prolapses, I've, I've heard people constantly talk about when it comes to the, the horn frog or the, the, the Pac-Man group, and then bacterial infections in dart frogs. So it just seems like everyone's kind of got their husbandry wrong. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say that fully. Um, I think a lot of us are doing better and better as time's going on to keep these frogs in a more ideal setting. Uh, the cloacal prolapse, things like that, that can be due to parasites or diet. Sometimes there's too much chitin in the insects the frogs are eating. Or they're, the Pac-Mans, they're eating the substrate in their tank, and although coconut husk is getting impacted and they're trying to get it out, and then their cloacal or rectum prolapses outwards. And at that point, you're thinking, what do I need to do different to make that not happen again? What are some hallmarks of good husbandry? So in my mind, kind of the key to start off with is, let's say you get a group of frogs, uh, depending on where they're from. uh, To be honest, most of the time, if I get a frog from a hobbyist that I trust and I know very well, or from Tesoros or kind of any of the other kind of importers of captive bred frogs, I tend to not quarantine them the way you should. Just because I think the normal tank is a better place for the frog to be, it's more natural, more realistic. But if you get a wild-caught group of frogs or frogs from a hobbyist, you just don't know. Quarantine is where you should start off. You should quarantine the frogs in a tub or something natural that you can clean regularly for about 30 days. Keep them in there, just observe them, make sure everything's okay. If you can, during that point in time, you should do a fecal. Uh, through a veterinarian who kind of knows what they're looking for, or I even know hobbyists who actually look at it themselves and they're able to just see if there's parasites with a fecal smear and make sure that they're not going to introduce those parasites into the tank. But quarantine is definitely the place we should start off when we're acquiring frogs. Just make sure they're healthy, they're happy. Uh, They're not going to kind of introduce anything to the rest of the frogs in your collection. That's kind of where I start off with. And then after that, I think we should make sure their tank is as natural as possible. Make sure that kind of the humidity, the ventilation, the temperatures are all good for the the amphibian going into the tank. Make sure that we can kind of make their habitat as natural as possible. Just because we're trying to replicate kind of the natural world, how everything should be for the frog. That way they're kind of, not acclimating to a, a subpar environment where things are going to go wrong for them. Do you have any questions about kind of quarantine or anything like that? Actually, I do. I was curious in like what kind of quarantine protocol would you recommend in, I'm just going to give an arbitrary situation here. Let's just say that, let, let's just say that you have three new frogs that you bought at say, uh, an expo that you think might have been wild caught, and let's just we'll we'll pick a species here. We'll say um, uh, why don't we say something that's a little bit more tricky? Let's say Ufaga familio. So let's just say that you've acquired three of these from an expo, and you want to quarantine them because everything else in your collection is captive bred. What would what would you do? Like what would your protocol be? So 
in an ideal world with that, what I would do is I would set them up in kind of a five gallon um, tub, a plastic tub of the Sterilite containers that you get at Target or any kind of kind of container store. I would kind of make sure there's some good ventilation on the top so we're not kind of overcooking them with a high humidity. And then I would put down some sphagnum moss with some leaf litter and then some natural plants. Now, that being said, the issue that we can arise into with just having them in one quarantine container is the fact that there can be parasites that are going to build up in that enclosure. And so if you're worried about parasites, what I would do is put in a kind of damp paper towel and change that out every day and then clean out the tub as well. Make sure there's good leaf litter that they can hide under, make sure we're not stressing them out too much. But uh, I would put them in a, a tub for about 30 days and just see what happens. Make sure they're not getting too skinny. Make sure you don't have any deaths between the group of those three. And then once that's done, I would put them in a in a tank just for that species and make sure you, you kind of go to that tank last. If you're kind of going there first and then the rest of your collection, you're going to predispose the collection to either parasites or chytrid fungus just by kind of touching that tank and moving to the other enclosures kind of afterwards. So I would treat that as it's kind of radioactive uh, regardless. Just don't kind of go to that enclosure right off the bat and just deal with those wild-caught frogs last. What would you use to clean the temporary enclosure with? Because I've heard different, I mean, obviously different compounds work with different pathogens. I mean, is there one chemical that you would use specifically that might be like almost like a broad spectrum? I mean, a, a, a dilute bleach solution uh, that you're sure is not going to be in there after you've cleaned it is kind of the best thing you can use. Uh, that's what I would start off the bat with, like a 1 to, to 100 dilution to start off with, just so you can see if the frogs are going to deal okay with that. Dawn dish soap actually does a great job. If you rinse out the tank kind of in your sink, uh, that will get rid of most most pathogens just by kind of cleaning it won't kill chytrid but it it'll kill kind of the the parasites by getting all the feces out of the enclosure now for chytrid i've I, again i've heard different things that have been considered to be effective against chytrid um i know obviously drying because chytrid needs moisture to to spread but if you wanted to lessen the risk that you would introduce an individual with chytrid what would you what how would you adjust the protocol for that oh with that i mean what i would do is i would the most ideal thing you can do with chytrid is testing uh, and that's something that i'm hoping to offer here in the future is just a pcr testing where i send swabs out to people and then they send that off to pisces lab so they can determine whether or not the frogs have chytrid with that being said what i would clean with is the dilute bleach or if you for sure know you have it, I would. Uh, you can heat it over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, and it kills it off fairly well. But bleach should do an okay job with chytrid. The fungal solutions do much better, but that's not something where anyone's going to have an antifungal to just spray down a tank uh, all the time. I've ha actually had people spray their tanks with uh, itraconazole if they were worried about it. Uh, which there's no evidence that it's going to work, but it doesn't hurt to do. 
uh, to kill off any potential chytrid, but bleach should do a good job with chytrid. If you did end up having an individual test positive for chytrid, now I'm just, I'm going to, let me, hold on, let me preface every, just preface this for the listeners. Obviously that everything that we're discussing today is kind of general and, and hypothetical. So I, I don't want anyone out there to necessarily go out and, and do what we're saying per se. These are just kind of some hypothetical sets of circumstances here. We're just trying to get a feel for what's going on. But if you did have an individual with Kitrid, like what, as a vet, what would your recommendation be? Like, would you recommend that it be euthanized or, or treated or what would you recommend? Yeah, I mean, chytrid in and of itself is not a, it's a lethal disease. It's a fungal pathogen that does kind of cause the frog not to be able to, to breathe normally. But what I would start off with would be just kind of a dilute uh, 0.01 mgs uh, per tig of itraconazole. And that's something you have to do for in a bath solution, add some Pedialyte, flavorless Pedialyte or amphibian ringers to the solution just so you're helping the electrolytes out. But I would do a bath for 10 days. Now, if you for sure know it's chytrid, the best thing to do is to PCR test the frog, swab the ventrum, make sure that you're actually treating the right disease because a lot of diseases in frogs present the same. Uh, But then I would do those baths and I would keep them in two different uh, plastic containers where you're moving the frog between containers um, every other day. So you bathe it, move it into the new clean container, and then do a bath the next day, move it into the first container, things like that. But the 10 days of treatment tend to clear up this fungus. If you can get the antifungal all over the skin, you're going to be able to kill off this fungus And then I'd wait a little bit to PCR test the frog again because the dead chytrid can show up positive on a PCR. And so the baths for 10 days actually tend to work fairly well. Just for the audience, could you explain what a PCR test is? So it's basically genetic testing to uh, determine the genome is chytrid. So you're doing reverse transcriptase with an RNA uh, kind of reader to genetically sequence the chytrid and make sure that's what's going on. And so it's a lab test where you send these swabs off to a lab and they're able to do molecular testing to make sure that that's exactly what it is. And Pisces tends to be by far the best lab to send these off to. Now, as far as the average person goes, let's just say that you don't live in an area where you have access to an exotics vet, you might have a small animal or a large animal practice. Would you be able to submit a fecal sample to someone? I mean, how do I put this? Uh, you go into a, vet, a vet's office and you just say, listen, I have this species of frog. I'd like you to, to send out for a fecal and maybe just kind of help them through the process so that they can help you. Is that something that you could go into a small animal practice and do, or would you have to find someone who has a relationship with one of these labs and who has experience doing this type of test? Well, so the good news for chytrid itself, it's just all you're doing is taking a Q-tip and rubbing that on the underside of the frog, getting it inside the legs, things like that. Now, the thing being, most labs don't have great chytrid testing. 
uh, IDEX does have a Kittred test. It's not as good as Pisces. And so hypothetically speaking, all that vet would have to do is take a sterile swab, rub it on the underside of the frog, and send it off to a lab that'll read it. And so it is possible. Now, that being said, most vets won't know what to do in terms of testing for Kittred. Uh, they're not going to know how to get these samples or they're not going to want to know. Uh, they're going to just say it's a frog. Who cares? Most vets aren't that way. But if you're a small animal only veterinarian, you're not going to be as invested in getting the answer because you just haven't learned about these animals. You don't maybe care as much about them as you would a dog or a cat or even a rabbit, things like that. But most vets should be able to get this answer if you can kind of help guide them through it. Or they can even contact me and I can tell them what to do and where to send things off to. Just That's kind of why I made this site, just so I can help people get the answers to help the frogs out. That's definitely something that there is a need for, because I, f I feel like I've had conversations with, with vets, and they'll ask me, like, well, you know, what other animals do you keep? And I say, well, I, I keep dendrobates, and they kind of look at me like I have 10 heads, and then I start <laughs> thinking, it... it, it it is outside the norm, especially relatively recently that people, I mean, people have been keeping dart frogs going back into the, the 90s and even people have been keeping other frogs since the beginning of time. But the veterinary awareness hasn't really been as peaked as it is now because I think we have so many more species around and so many people are, when I say species around, I mean species in the hobby. And now people seem to have this genuine curiosity because they want to provide the best care possible. But, you know, at the average mom and pop type of vet, they might not be able to get that. And that's obviously where someone like you would come in. Yeah. And, and to be honest, so I working with exotics now when I uh, grew up working with only felines and through my veterinary career, I was at a cat only practice. I love seeing how far people are willing to go for their their snake or for their their rabbit or their tenric or their hedgehog in terms of how much they care about them. And I love exotics too. And it is my job to make these animals better, but it's so cool to see the owners wanting to get their pets the best care possible. And that's something that dogs and cats have gotten for a while. Horses have gotten, um, pigs have, if you're keeping a pot-bellied pig, but owners are wanting their pets to be healthier especially during this pandemic because they're what they have but it's really cool to me to see kind of the interest in good veterinary care growing throughout species and frogs i feel like frogs and fish are kind of the low men on the totem pole in terms of there's not a lot of vets that are out there doing this to help them out or there's not a lot of vets that actually truly know how to care for them properly in terms of medical care and so I want to be that bridge of the gap for frog medicine, uh, salamander medicine, axolotl medicine, things like that, where I can help these vets or these owners get them the best care they deserve. Yeah, I neglected to mention axolotls too, which are extremely popular. And, and <laughs> yeah. again, a, a model organism. So you would think that the, the, the need is there. I mean, especially axolotls. I mean, they, they're, everyone loves an axolotl. Oh, for sure. And I launched, I don't know what day I launched my website. Um, I'd have to go back and look, but I've had more emails about axolotls than any other species. And that's still a species where I, I need to learn a little bit more about because they're 
they're aquatic. They need a cold tank. They're more predisposed to fish diseases, uh, fungal infections that are common in them, things like that. But axolotls, people love, and people want to get them the best care they can get. And so I've had more emails about axolotls than actually any other species out there, which is interesting to me. It doesn't surprise me. I I find that the different amphibian communities sort of have their own norms and values, so to speak, whereas the you know, the, the further down this rabbit hole that I've gone, I found out that the, the dendrobated community is very, very different from the White's tree frog community and the horn frog community, even different countries, different parts of this country, et cetera. Everyone kind of has different attitudes and the axolotl community, they really, really, I mean, not to say that everyone doesn't, but they, they love these animals and the relationship that people have with axolotls, at least, at least to me, and I'm just, nobody cares what I think anyway, but uh, <laughs> it seems to be a more intimate relationship the way people might have with like a dog or a cat. I don't know why, but like people like myself, like with the dendrobateds, a lot of us tend to keep them more like, like a museum exhibit. That's just my, that's just my perception of how it goes. Uh, maybe that's a possible explanation. I don't know. I'll, I'll stop talking now. Uh, well, no, no. I, <laughs> I think it's their cute little faces. Um, they look like toothless from uh, how to train your dragon. It, they probably get real attached. They're not keeping as many of them. Uh, just because of the space they require. But uh, I think cute faces and big eyes go a long way in, uh, for animals. Uh, we're real attracted to that. They look closer to babies. Um, it's just something where if you have one pet, you're a little bit more amped up to make sure it's okay uh, than if you have, say, 20 frogs and one sick. Uh, $20 erratus you might not be as concerned about because you have a $150 other frog, uh, uh, Ranatomea sorensis highland, that you're like, well, this one's more important to me. But with one axolotl, if that's all you have, you're more likely to seek out the care that it may need. Now, if you have a uh, large obligate that's worth $1,000, uh, you're probably going to get it the care or try to get the care that it needs a little bit quicker than a frog someone gave to you or was $20. As sad as that is, it's just how the hobby works. I uh, I got a deal on some Lamani a year ago, and I was told that one of them was sick, and I was naive and dumb enough to think my veterinary medicine would cure it, and I ended up losing the pair uh, that I got 50% off just because they had underlying conditions that I wasn't able to solve in the, the week's time I had them. That must have been it's, frustrating. <laughs> yeah, and I'm one of those people that I I say, well, I'm not going to make a big deal of it to the person I got the frog from because they were very up upright and uh, telling me that one of the frogs didn't look good. And so I, I took the risk myself. And so I just kicked myself for that one. Well, it happens. I mean, it does more than we'd like to say. Um, I've had probably all the frog experiences besides Kitrid that every other hobbyist has had. And I've learned more about frog medicine just through my own failures than any textbook could teach me. One, one 
common issue that I we mentioned a, a little bit briefly when we started, but I wanted to return to it, is parasites. Now, parasites are a common concern with, with any captive animal, whether it's dog or cat, frog, salamander, whatever. Can you tell us about some of the parasites that affect amphibians on a regular basis, like what their lifestyles or what their life cycles are like and, and how they how they're required? Oh, definitely. So the, the the kind of one group of parasites we worry the most about with frogs is the roundworms. Uh, you have the rabdius lungworms and the strongyloides species. Now the lungworms, these ones are the kind of the most dangerous because they actually replicate just with the frog. They don't need an intermediate host. And so the lungworms, the frog actually has it in their lungs. And I've seen pictures of this um, with glass frogs where you can actually see their lungs and you see a little worm just hanging out right there. And you think, well, that's a rabious lungworm right off the back. So with those ones, they actually kind of cough up the eggs that are laid in the lungs and then they swallow them. They make their way into the GI tract, um, get pooped out and then the eggs and larvae are out there in the tank. And so that's kind of a infection where it can just self-replicate time after time after time just because it's a direct life cycle. All they need is the frog. They get ingested again, go to the lungs, get coughed up as eggs or larvae, and then defecated out. And so those can cause kind of super infections that can kill a frog or at least kind of hinder their health just because they're taking away their airspace in their lungs. Uh, those ones with the rabious lungworms, uh, they can replicate within two days. And so that's something where if you have a frog in quarantine, you haven't run a fecal, which you should do. If you see on that fecal that you have rabious lungworms or any kind of roundworm, you should be treating those frogs every 10 days with uh, basically panicure those granules, you kind of mash them up, you dust the flies with, or if you can get a kind of proper dilution, you should give them an oral concentration every 10 days with a little dropper uh, for about two to three treatments to kind of kill everything off. But you have to clean the, the cage daily. So you're removing all those larvae that will infect them again. So kind of quarantine is part of this parasite life cycle where uh, switching tanks and cleaning them out every day is the best thing to do. Could you cross-contaminate? Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. Go for it. Go for it. Well, what I was going to ask was, obviously, cross-contamination is something that you're going to want to avoid. I wash my hands between any kind of maintenance I do between tanks. Like if I'm wiping glass down, I, I never use the same paper towel on two on two tanks. But mm -hmm. let's just say that you have, say you have a trio of frogs in one vivarium. And let's just say that they have a parasite, like they have lungworm. Can that parasite migrate out of their vivarium into a neighboring vivarium? Or is that just kind of me being a little bit paranoid? Uh, no, no, that's you being paranoid. Um, okay. As good as that to say. Um, for the most part, what you would have to do is get those feces on your finger and then move that to the next tank. But if you're touching that tank and going to kind of, let's say you had a captive bred uh, tinctorious or something like that, you go to that tank with feces on your hand or you use the same paper towel, you can definitely spread it that way. And parasites don't concern me the same way chytrid does. 
Kittredge is, is one of those, it's like the COVID of frogs. That fungus can just spread with the zoospores so easily that my kind of biggest fear with at least my own collection is, let's say you have a wild-caught frog come in um, and then you touch that tank, you get some zoospores on you and you move to the other tanks with your kind of captive bred, long-term captive frogs, that can spread extremely easily. So uh, I've had frogs, I have a group of uh, Cotrinella granulosa that I got about a year ago, and I had them in a separate room. I had them back at my parents' house in a huge kind of two foot by two foot by four foot tall tank after they had been quarantined. And I didn't want them in the same room as my long-term frogs just so I wouldn't spread any potential chytrid uh, to the frogs I've had for a while. With parasites, they're not as likely to kind of just hop up and migrate over to another tank unless you touch it with either a tool to clean the tank or you're using scissors in that tank and you go to the other tank and you have some feces on there, then they can easily spread that way. So we're kind of the vector or the fomite of bringing parasites uh, if we're not doing good biosecurity measures. What about transferring plant cuttings? It's like say you wanted to take a cutting from one vivarium and make sure that the plant was safe to put into another vivarium. What would you recommend in that case? Yeah, I mean, I'm guilty of all these things. Uh, Eventually we think, oh, our frogs are all healthy, all that. Uh, The best thing to do is just wash it in kind of lukewarm water um, with soap in there and a dilute bleach solution for about 10 to 15 minutes and then rinse it off real good and transfer it to the other tank. But we all send cuttings to each other throughout the country and we should all make sure to at least clean them with soap and bleach, depending on the plant type. I actually have a plant quarantine tank that I'm working on right now, just because I've had more issues with plant parasites than I had with frog parasites, where I'm just making sure they're all good without snails or slugs or spider mites, things like that. And I even threw in a bunch of ladybugs, but (laughs) we need to be that good about kind of the plants we put in our frogs tanks so we're not spreading diseases that way. What about parasites that we can, or I shouldn't say parasites, but what about microorganisms that we can see with the naked eye? Because in some of my vivariums, I've seen, usually after lights out, these like maybe half-inch long white wormy looking things swimming around. I've heard that if you can see it, it's generally not uh, a problem. I've heard it's the ones that you can't see that are a problem when it comes to parasites. Now, can you enlighten me on that? Yeah, are they nematines? Uh, do they look like little worms that are kind of about a half inch, a little bit brownish? Uh, these are white. Yeah, I mean, most of the time, those aren't going to impact the frogs. Uh, it depends on the, the species of parasite in there, but they're usually more an impact to the kind of microfauna, like the springtails, things like that, than they would be to the frogs themselves. I have slugs in a couple of my tanks and they're a pain in the butt just because they eat the plants and they can go after the the dart frog eggs, but they don't worry me in terms of diseases for the frog themselves. Now the overall tank, um, it doesn't function as well if they're eating off kind of the plants that I'm using for the frogs, but most of the time parasites that are going to concern the frogs are going to be something you can't see with your naked eye. 
they're going to be microscopic um, worms or giardia, things like that, that you're never going to see without a microscope. So anything visual, I'm never as concerned about for the frog's sake. Now, the plants might be impacted, but that's a whole other story. Uh, just because the frogs don't really need the plants, they just enjoy them. What are some common treatments for, I mean, obviously treatment varies depending on the type of parasite, but what are some treatments that you've seen be successful in some different situations? Yeah, I mean, we talked before the podcast about you've used Panicure on your frogs, uh, the fenbendazole. It's a broad spectrum. It has three different or two different medications in there um, that can actually do a really good job of killing off most kind of common parasites as well as Giardia. And so I love Panicure granules. You get them for dogs on Chewy.com. You need your vet to prescribe them. But you just mash them up and dust the fruit flies once every 10 days uh, for about two to three uh, two to three times. So you're getting the whole cycle of the parasites. Uh, that works well. That's safe. The only thing that worries me is that the frogs don't get enough of the dose just because it comes off the fruit flies. So making sure it's ground up as well as possible is the best thing to do. And then Drontal uh, is a three-product medication that works great as well. It's just not commonly used in frogs just because it's not as easy to get. But uh, if you can get that into the frogs, it will kill off a broad spectrum of parasites as well. It doesn't cover Giardia the way Panicure does, but it gets most of the roundworms that we need to take care of. And so those two are by far my favorite. There's other things out there, but they're just more old school medicine. And so they're not going to be common to acquire things like that. But those two, uh, Panicure and Drontal, are by far the best uh, antiparasitics we can use. And those are safe to use uh, without knowing the frogs have an infection. So you can prophylactically treat them uh, just if you assume they have an infection uh, safely. If a frog is, I shouldn't say losing weight, but if a frog is not gaining weight and not putting on a tremendous amount of mass, is it a reasonable suspicion that parasites would be involved? Uh, if they're not putting on weight, it's safe to assume they have parasites. Now, after treating them uh, for three consecutive 10-day wait 10 days, treat three times, and they're still not putting on weight, then I might feed them some uh, fruit fly larvae just because they're a lot more fatty uh, than fruit flies themselves. But if they're not putting on weight after they've been treated for parasites, it's good to, to see if there's something else going on with the husbandry causing them to be too skinny. Are they being bullied in the tank by a tank mate? Things like that can also contribute to it. Have... um. Have you ever seen issues where, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, where there's like a repeat infection of a parasite? Like, let's just say that you do a treatment for parasites on Panicure, and then the frogs reinfect themselves from being in that same vivarium. I mean, is that, you mentioned earlier about kind of stripping everything down and cleaning it over and over again. Would you want to treat them in a quarantine type of situation while they were being treated for parasites, or just treat them as is in the vivarium? Well, so if, if you're just treating to be safe um, in the vivarium, it's fine. But if you're really suspicious there are parasites, it's best to keep them in uh, an enclosure, like a, a plastic sterilite container, and clean that out daily 
uh, just to kind of get rid of the parasite life cycle. And so if I was real concerned, I would have them in quarantine again and treat through quarantine. Frogs shouldn't be released from quarantine ideally without kind of a negative fecal or a fecal where the burden has gone down. There's a lot of debate out there whether kind of eliminating all parasites is actually necessary. A lot of these frogs have evolved in the wild with a low parasite burden. And so they're used to having parasites. And so elimination fully is sometimes not ideal just because you're having to treat them so much, or it's just not necessary. They've evolved to live with a low-grade parasite burden where you don't actually have to kill off all the parasites. Sometimes the goal is just to reduce the parasite load so the frogs can absorb the nutrients they need. If the frogs are going to be kind of released to the wild, say a Panamanian golden frog, Adelopis zetechi, uh, you're not going to want to kill off all the parasites just because you're throwing them out there with no immunity. And so with frogs you're going to release back to the wild, you actually want them to have some low-grade parasitic infection of a endemic species, parasite species, just so they're not kind of going out there and then bam, they get hit with a parasite that they're not used to. So it all really depends on the, the circumstances, but sometimes reduction is the goal and not elimination. I think if that, that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. That's one of those things that in, even in human medicine, um, I mean, it's not parasites, but uh, like probiotics, for example, when people are treated with certain antibiotics, it, it destroys a lot of your normal intestinal flora. And people can run the risk of getting an opportunistic, uh, inf- like, mm-hmm. like like C. diff. You're, it's like an opportunistic, inf- not an infection, but uh, a certain bacteria that you don't want in yeah. there fills that niche that's been destroyed by the by the antibiotic, and then that takes over and that becomes a problem. Yeah, it uh, leads to like a bacterial overgrowth of a common a C. diff uh, can live in your gut normally, and so it just takes over and. Uh, spreads a little bit too quickly. There's too much of the C. diff releasing toxins uh, that can definitely really hinder you. So it all depends on the what's the goal for the frog. Uh, they've evolved just like we have with parasites and infections where sometimes getting rid of all these parasites is never going to happen. And so making sure that you've gotten it to a, a lower burden where it's not impacting the frog or the amphibian is the key, especially with the ones we're going to re-release to the wild, you don't want them to go out there kind of naked uh, with no defenses and just get destroyed when they get re-released and they get all the parasites all at once. So it really depends on what is your goal. If you want to eliminate it, then quarantine is an ideal situation because you have that time to make sure it's kind of going down by repeating fecals. And then making sure before you put them back into the tank that the the loads where you want it or the load is negative uh, about a couple of days before you're supposed to put them back in their normal enclosure. And a lot of this is kind of geared towards zoo medicine, but it's something as hobbyists we can also do to make sure our frogs are as healthy as possible. That was actually something I wanted to just touch on was do you feel like that there's two veterinary worlds out there? There's the world of the companion animal, which essentially hobbyists, I mean, for all intents and purposes, they're, they're companion animals. And then there's the zoo or aquarium 
type of veterinarian? Uh, yes. Um, so most veterinarians, uh, a zoo vet for the most part knows a good amount about frogs just because they've had to deal with them. But also the, the keepers at zoos, uh, Derek Benson is a good buddy of mine. He's a zookeeper out in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. They know a whole bunch about individual species of frogs and then kind of everything about that species they're working with. Uh, but there's a combo team of the vet at the zoo that works with um, the keeper to make sure the, the frogs are okay. That being said, I think that most of us should try and aim to keep our frogs the way they're kept at zoos, where kind of they're getting the best treatment as possible if if we can do that. But it's not always feasible. I do think most zoo vets, all zoo vets know more about frogs than your common veterinarian. And I'm trying to be that gap of that veterinarian who can help a zoo vet um, just kind of cater more towards amphibian medicine because you might have a veterinarian who's more adept at sea lion or aquatic medicine that's working at an aquarium with frogs and they don't know, know everything about frogs but they still know more than your common veterinarian i'm trying to be that one kind of vocalized vet that can help those people out i my fiance did a externship at a aquarium in the country uh, i'm not going to say which one but they got a lot of their frogs from a distributor that's just not the highest quality. And so she was telling me that they had about 90% of their frogs die off within a three month period. And I thought, wow, they have vets. She was working with the vet staff and they really didn't know what to do. And so I actually sent them some resources, but I was thinking, Hey, if I can come out there in the future and help them out, make sure everything's okay. Uh, get the frogs back in order, it would be a great thing to provide to even zoo vets. And so there, there is a gap between most zoo vets do know more about frog medicine for sure than your common veterinarian, but there's still kind of a learning curve with amphibian medicine. Well, you, you answered my question. I, you know, it, it, to me, it seems like a lot of us in the hobby, we do want to maintain our collections I mean, to go back to what I said, especially in the dark, in the dark frog world, but we want to maintain our collections as close to a zoo as possible. And I think that that approach, like the, the, the zoological parks approach to veterinary medicine is kind of what we want to go to as opposed to say the, um, the more broad or non-specialized local type of vet, because it seems to me that the more we keep exotics and they're just the, Momentum that exotics seem to be building in the hobby is, is, is I don't think that that's going to go away anytime soon, but we are looking to provide specialized care for very, very specialized animals. And you're right, that niche needs to be filled because it's only going to continue to be there. And if there's no one to bridge that gap, I mean, somebody's eventually going to step in, but obviously it's, you know, that's, 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 you know, your, your long-term goal here is to bridge that gap. Yeah, I mean, and it's something at my vet school graduation, uh, not too far back, we had to announce what our goals were for the future. And I said I was going to work at a feline practice, but my goal was to be the top amphibian veterinarian in the country. And and they kind of laughed about it, but it's really not that hard of a niche to fill just because nobody wants to do it or nobody has the knowledge to do it. 
And I've kind of thought, hey, why don't you just make sure this happens? <clears throat> Be there for everybody that needs a vet for their frog or their salamander or their axolotl. But it's a goal that there's not many people who have that goal in life to be a veterinarian for frogs. And if no one's going to fill that niche, I think, Hey, it's my dream. Why not make it happen? I have a couple friends, uh, Walter Merker, I consult with all the time and Dr. Ozaboff out at Florida. I talked to him before I was making this website and we were going to grab a beer um, at an exotics conference. We were both supposed to go to in Denver back in august but it got canceled because of covid but he said hey let me help you out let's make this feasible let's make this happen just because he knows the need for it too being a kind of exotics pathologist and then keeping frogs himself uh, he was very gung-ho about making this dream a reality so i'm hoping that just with networking i'm able to kind of build more vets work with them help other people out to kind of help their frogs out that need the care that they don't commonly get. Do you think that, I mean, obviously the amount of resources available for mammalian, avian, and, and even reptile medicine are, are there. Do you think that the situation is going to change, especially given everything, given everything that's going on now with, with amphibian, essentially pandemics? You, you, you know, chytrid is a, a pandemic for frogs. Oh, for sure. B-cell is, is for salamanders. Oh, for sure. Do you think that there's going to be a need for more amphibian veterinarians in the near future? I do think there needs to be, well, for conservation approaches, uh, for zoo um, keepers to kind of take these frogs from the wild that are being destroyed by chytrid fungus, which we had to deal with a little while back. Um, you're basically taking them all from the wild and just saving them the best possible. Uh, I do think veterinarians are going to play a role. That being said, there's not many vets I know that would probably go out there to kind of make sure this happens. But we have about 32.5% of amphibians that are threatened with extinction currently versus 23% of mammals and 12% of birds. And that's back from a few years back, a study that was done. But frogs are very predisposed to diseases just with their life cycle being in the water, onto land, and then also kind of breathing through their skin. They absorb toxins and poisons a lot quicker than every other species just with how their skin's oriented. Where you're going to need vets to help save these frogs at some point when the next chytrid comes about. And so we definitely will need medical care for these guys or uh, vaccines to be made to make sure that these frogs can go back to the wild where they belong. And that being said, they've actually made a chytrid vaccine, but it just has to target the right kind of subspecies of chytrid. And so things like that are already in the works where you can vaccinate a frog for chytrid if it's the right organism they're going to encounter in the wild. And so I do hope, my dream would be go to the, the rainforest or other places and help these frogs in the wild, or at least help people reintroduce them back into the natural environment, just so they can be where they belong. I often wonder what the next crop of, of veterinarians is going to have available to them, meaning... Let's just say you have a younger listener now, someone who is, is you know, 10, 11, 12. In, tw in 10 years, 
there could very well be a, you know, such a need for this that it becomes part of the typical veterinary curriculum. I mean, do you think that that's a possibility? Because to me, it just seems like there's more attention towards exotics now, more so than ever. And, and not even necessarily just from a hobbyist perspective, like I said before. Do you think that it, like a kid today who's you know, 10, 12 years old will have resources available to them that aren't available now? Um, well, medicine is ever-changing. Um, veterinary medicine... It's always one or two steps behind human medicine. I do hope they're going to have more resources. It all depends on which school you go to, to be honest, in terms of your exotics education. Uh, some schools focus a lot more heavily on them than others. But for the most part, they're not touched on to the extent that we would like. I mean, I spent a lot more time learning about horses and pigs and sheep and goats that I knew I would never work with um, than exotics. And all the exotics that I learned about was just having to take electives on my own. I'm hoping that as these kind of exotic pets become more common and we're taking better care of them, that they're going to teach the medicine comparable to dogs and cats so that the veterinarians going out into the workforce know what to do. And it also helps the natural world. If we have better vets that are catered towards wildlife, we're going to help preserve these species as best possible. And so I'm hoping that kids that are 12 at this point will go out into the world knowing everything they can, at least uh, the basics about birds, reptiles, amphibians, fish, things like that, where they're going to be able to help them right, right away without having to do further research on their own. So one can hope, but I'm not overly optimistic that they're going to start teaching them the same way they do kind of the more common species, at least at this point in time. I just think about all the young kids who just think that like, you know what, like when I grow up, I want to be a frog vet. And, <laughs> and, and Probably just, not many out there, but yeah. I'm hoping there are some. You never just, know. You never know. Hopefully. No, I mean, I just grew up loving frogs and birds and my dad's a huge uh, bird watcher and wrote a book on John James Audubon as a hobby where I thought, Hey, why don't I just pursue, I already pursued my dream of becoming a vet. Why not cater it towards what I'm interested in? Because there's people who want someone to be a vet for their frog. Uh, <laughs> not as many as for a dog or a cat, but all of us hobbyists know how important they are to us and to our kind of well-being. that if your frog's sick, most people want to make sure they get better just because they care so much about them and they just want to make sure that they can help them as part of their life and make sure the frog's still around to be there for them. Yeah. One of the things that you know, just, I, I don't generally discuss ethics too much, but <laughs> one of the, cause it's a slippery slope, but We're I, good. I, I, I always took issue with disposable pets. I, Me too. I, I, fell into that trap when I was younger. And what's interesting was the, the quote unquote disposable pets that came into our care. My, my, my family, my wife and my kids always did very well. And case in point, my daughter was won a goldfish at a, um, at a carnival and we brought it home. We set it up the correct way and it lived for quite some time. And man, I gave my in-laws the business big time about like bringing home a hermit crab from Atlantic City, <laughs> which is if you live here on the East Coast, like the New York, New Jersey area, they sell hermit crabs on the beach in Atlantic City over the summer. Mm -hmm. And they give you this terrible 
starter kit, which is just like, uh, it's like a little screen, um, like almost like a half of a barrel with the little plastic. It's like what they did in the, in the sixties with, with radiard spiders. Yeah, yeah. They give you this terrible kit and I gave them the business like you, I was like, you, you know, you're encouraging this, but we still gave them the best, you know, did our research, gave them the best care that they could. And they're still here. You know, they live in as naturalistic a setup as we could provide. So we don't see them too often, but you know, they're, they're, they're taken care of. But, you know, I think that you're right that the, the, the trend towards people wanting to do the right thing by their animals is, is increasing. And again, nothing should be disposable. I, I understand that there are practical needs that, that, that happen. I mean, for all intents and purposes, there shouldn't be, but yes, there is a difference no, between a, tw- yeah, a $20 no. erratus and, you know, a, a $5,000 sexed pair of obligates that just came in on an import, you know, especially if you're going to oh, do a breeding sure. practice, but. Yeah, no, and it's sad that we put this monetary value on them. Um, it's just how our society works, but I actually, when I was in vet school, I had a good buddy of mine, uh, Bill Rodman, who started in situ uh, vivariums recently, or in situ ecosystems. Uh, he had a trio of uh, Vicente, Red Vicente, coming. Uh, I'm not sure who they came from, but he had them shipped to me just because of how his life was going. He is an engineer. He had to go on some trip. So he had the trio sent to me. And I, I didn't really, I didn't pay for them. They were just sent to me for me to care for because he trusted me so much. And I had a red Vicente female. The, we had a uh, one female and two males, a 1.2 or 2.1. And uh, the female came in with hypocalcemic tetany. And so I was just crapping my pants. Uh, I skipped uh, a lecture to go pick them up at the FedEx all that and she comes out of her little tub tupperware container and she's just seizing and i thought oh crap she's hypocalcemic not enough calcium i need to get some calcium gluconate to treat her uh the vet school doesn't really they have it but i couldn't get it through the vet school at that point in time so i had to go to a local emergency clinic where i knew the owner who's also a vet who went uh, to nicaragua with me back in the day and they gave me some 2.3% calcium gluconate to treat her with. But she died about a couple of days later. And this was, I think, a $500 frog at that point in time when they weren't imported. There weren't a whole bunch around, probably only a few in the country. And so a frog like that, you're thinking there's not many in captivity. Uh, it's the one female in the group. I need to treat this frog because a buddy's giving it to me. I know how to treat it, but I can't because it came in such poor condition. And so those are the kind of frogs where you think we're never going to really have that many around. And we just kind of shot it by poor husbandry and then shipped it out the door when she wasn't ready to go. And so I, I, all frogs should be treated that way, but the rarity and the hobby does play a factor in terms of who's going to try and get care for a certain frog. Now, that being said, we should all aim for every frog to be kept as if it's kind of the only frog left because one day there may be no erratus left in the captivity just because we don't really give them as much attention. That's a very good point, yeah. 
And so that being said, no, I get what you're saying about the hermit crabs. Uh, we should treat every pet we have the way we would those hermit crabs you're taking care of. Yeah, now they own me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've seen people get attached to interesting pets, and it's great. It's how we all should strive to be is taking the best care we can of every pet we have in our house. Yeah. They're, they're like pet holes. You know, I did a tremendous amount of research and, you know, we set them up with a, a lot of substrate and just did, you know, went, went through the ringer and I guess they're happy because they, you know, they're still doing really well. And, you know, I wouldn't advise anyone to get them under those circumstances, but you know, it's, it's look, they're mine. They're in my house. I'm responsible for their well being. But, you know, as far as, as access to quality veterinary care goes, oftentimes hobbyists don't have access to really much in the way of any any veterinary care. And people oftentimes rely on the experiences of other experienced hobbyists and whatnot, and there's a lot of home remedies out there that are suggested by other keepers. Do you lend any credence to some of these home remedies like that circulate throughout the community? I mean, one example is the use of honey to relieve prolapses and another one is soaking frogs in a ringer in a ringer solution to rehydrate if it's been stressed i've heard people about i've heard about people assisting uh, excuse me assist feeding anorexic frogs with liquid diets i mean do you lend any credence to any of this stuff or like what, oh what's for your, sure okay 110 percent um when i was in vet school i got a group of lemur leaf frogs and uh one of them prolapsed just from poor nutrition in my mind i was feeding too many bean beetles and uh honey works amazingly uh, it kind of pulls out all the water through the process of a osmotic pull and it also is an antibacterial so you're basically putting on an antibiotic that is honey that does a great job as an antibiotic and then shrinking the tissue by osmotic draw so it's taking kind of all the fluid out of there to shrink it down so it can go back in honey by far in my mind is a great thing to use for a prolapse you can use uh sugar solutions things like that but honey is going to give you the antibiotic properties that you may need the cloaca does get exposed kind of to feces all that all the time but if it's out there in the tank and uh, exposed to bacteria it might not normally get honey is going to kill a lot of that off. So you're going to shrink it down, get it back in the body, and then try to determine what you did to cause it, whether you're feeding too many crickets to a frog that didn't do well with crickets, things like that. I do think honey is by far the best thing you can use for a prolapse. In uh, a frog or a, even a dog or a cat, it works well too. But if a frog came into me with a cloacal prolapse, I'd probably just tell him to put some honey on it um, some pasteurized honey on it at home just because it works so well. So that one, uh, that is a true statement for that, for sure, that honey is a great thing to use. Now with uh, ringer solution, you can get that on like Carolina reptiles, uh, which they use um, for schools to get kind of, or Carolina, I think it's supplies. Uh, they do sell ringer solutions online that you can get. If you're in a pinch, uh, most of my frogs have not gotten sick uh, just with me to have enough time to get a ringer solution if I didn't have it at my hands. I would use some flavorless Pedialyte. That stuff works great. A bath in that uh, lukewarm Pedialyte, uh, the flavorless uh, brand, 
uh, will give them electrolytes to make them better hydrated until you can get the ringer solution. So flavorless Pedialyte is also one of my go-tos just because it's so safe and it does rehydrate frogs so well. And all you have to do is put them in a little plastic Tupperware container, make sure it's not too cold, not too hot, kind of lukewarm, uh, dechlorinated water, or water, things like that, and bathe them for 10 minutes uh, with the Pedialyte. And that works great too. Another thing that I've actually had people use if they can't get into a vet is uh, Neosporin. For a lot of those rostral abrasions, it does work well. That being said, my favorite is silver sulfadiazine because it does fungus and uh, bacteria, but you need a prescription for that. And so that's hard to acquire just right off the get-go, but a little bit of Neosporin on an open abrasion it's never going to kill a frog. It's only going to provide an antibiotic that's going to sit there and kill off the bad bacteria until you can get something better. So those three are kind of my three that I think work the best in the hobby. Now, there's probably a lot of other things out there. I haven't seen too many things where I thought that's the dumbest thing you can do. Uh, but those three, uh, Neosporin, Flavorless Pedialyte, and Honey, do a great job. As far as prolapses go, I've also heard that once a prolapse happens, it's 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 more likely to recur. Is that the case? And if you do have a frog that prolapses to the point where it can't be manipulated back inside, what would the next course of action be? So if you can't manipulate it back inside, I mean, I've the most frogs I've treated, I've had two frogs in my own collection that I've treated with honey. And it was a game changer. Never happened again. Um, if it doesn't go back inside, what you can do, and you'd probably need, you for sure need a veterinarian for this, is they can place a purse string mattress suture pattern uh, to kind of put it back in there and suture it into place. That being said, working on an Ophago pumilio is not the easiest thing in the world. <laughs> the size of the tissue, the size of the suture you need to put in there, it's just so tiny. Uh, where you're kind of doing kind of more like a root canal type procedure in terms of fine fine needle handling, things like that. But uh, purse string suture is what you would do if it doesn't go back in. And that's just basically placing the cloaca in place and suturing it down, a tie down of uh, that tissue just so it's going to stay there and kind of scar over and won't come back out. Here's another question that, that kind of just, I mean, I always keep notes, but this kind of just came into my head right now. Pain relief. There's been a lot of debate about the treatment of pain in non-human animals, as, as, I mean, especially non-mammalian animals. Have you had any experience with the use of painkillers or, or anesthesia or anything that might uh, act as, as, as pain relief during a procedure or, or after a procedure? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if I should get into this just because people might be like, what were you thinking? But I had a uh, a baby Ranatomea species uh, with a limb that was basically dying off. I'm not sure if it was a tank that caused it or got it caught somewhere, but its front arm was kind of eating itself away. And so what I did and um, was sure to make sure it had a pain control was I lightly sedated it and then i use a lidocaine block 
uh, with a real dilute lidocaine solution, and I did an amputation on the front arm. And the frog, what I did throughout kind of the next few days was I just made sure to keep placing some lidocaine on that that limb where I had removed the arm just to make sure it wasn't in pain. Uh, it's one of those things where we can't assess it fully, but pain evolved early, early on where they're not going to show the symptoms of pain. They're still going to feel it. It might not be the same pain you or I feel, but let's say you and I both have a uh, a tooth that's infected, you might feel a sharp pain in your tooth. I might feel nothing. Uh, you just need to as- assume that it's going to be painful if it's anything that you think would cause pain for you. So the lidocaine itself actually did a great job of making sure the frog was comfortable and I diluted it down to the proper dilution, but I just did not want the frog to feel any discomfort with something like that. Now in the wild, there then might get bitten off by a predator things like that. But if you have the means of providing any pain control, it's the best thing you can do just because it's going to help them heal quicker and feel better and get back to normal a lot faster. That frog was a very small, about two to three month old, Renatomea baby. And it made it two to three more months with three limbs. And so I don't blame the surgery itself for it dying. It, I just don't think it was able to get the food uh, as well as it could have if it had four limbs. But it was going to die regardless if I did nothing. So I made sure it had pain control and was sedated before I removed it. That's that's still a pretty interesting case to do that type of a procedure on something that's so small. Yeah, I mean, it was, I also consulted with some surgeons at the time and they thought, what's the risk? It, it's going to die if you don't do nothing. It's damned if I do, damned if I don't. And so I thought, why not give it a go? And I actually think it went as smooth as it could have gone because I felt comfortable that it had the pain control it needed. Yeah, it's one of those issues that I've heard. I mean, I, I did I did have some experience in veterinary medicine. I did work um I did work for a twenty four hour veterinary facility going back about maybe about eighteen years. And we would have we would have discussions. I mean, I worked overnight from like midnight to seven a.m. And we would have, yeah, <laughs> we I always worked at night, but um, we would have discussions about pain management because obviously pain was was an issue, and there were a lot of student vets who were, I guess, doing their um, uh, doing their residency, I guess, at the hospital, and we would often have discussions about pain and whatnot, and we would often talk about different species ability to experience pain, what it must be like, you know, and interestingly enough in, in, in Mater's um, reptile and amphibian medicine and surgery, there's, there's a, the, the lion's share of information that they did give towards amphibians was, uh, was actually anesthetic uh, yeah, and pain management. I was surprised about that. Yeah. I mean, which, which Mater did you look at? Was it the newer one or was it kind of an older? This version? was the most recent edition. Yeah, I mean, that one's up to speed, but it's like 90% reptile, 10% frog medicine. And I mean, Wright's done a great job. Most of Wright and Whitaker amphibian medicine and captive husbandry is up to speed. But pain management, I mean, they even say in fish, we know for sure that a lot of these animals feel pain. They just don't show it the same way we do. And so treating for pain, if it's something you would think would be painful for yourself, it's definitely something we need to do with frogs. 
uh, and that's something where you need a vet to do it. Uh, if I didn't have the lidocaine or the knowledge, I never would have amputated a front limb on a baby frog. But uh, if you can control the pain through veterinary medicine, having a vet that's willing to help you out, you're for sure going to do the frog a good favor and make sure that it's feeling as good as possible so it can heal quicker. And most of the times we're treating pain preemptively. And so we're kind of making sure that the pain doesn't ever happen as best as possible because anesthetic doesn't take that away. Uh, The nerve blocks, things like that are what take care of the pain. So if we can start from the get-go, the animal's going to do much better recovering. If we're doing anti-inflammatories and pain medications, they're just going to have a better chance at getting better quicker, which with frogs is key. So they're back to eating and doing the best they can. An amputation in frogs is not uncommon. Axolotls will just kind of grow back the limb if they ever have a limb amputated accidentally in the wild, they regenerate, but frogs can't. So if we can get them back, make sure they're eating food uh, as quick as possible, uh, and syringe feeding them with an oxbow, carnivore care, things like that, we're going to just do them a better service. But they definitely do feel pain. It might not be the same extent as us, but we don't know for sure. Yeah, the, the other thing that was on my mind that, that kind of prompted me to ask this question was on the the good old internet that everyone loves so much. Uh, a couple of months back, I came across something, and I, I didn't want to put fuel on the fire by really responding to it, but this person made a post that uh, there was a frog in their possession that had um pro uh, i forget what the, it, it its stomach had prolapsed out through its mouth that was the description that they provided so uh, you know and this was i think this was w- w- something in the um in the ceratophorus complex that was it was some sort of uh either cranwells or an, or an anata i don't remember but that's immaterial but the point is this person then went on to describe the procedure that they used to slice this open and then place it back inside and then suture it closed and i started thinking to myself could you imagine the horrific amount of pain that this poor animal endured while you were doing this frankenstein's monster type of surgery on it i just that was the first thought that came into my mind was you you have no idea what you're doing and you're probably causing this animal a, a exquisite amount of pain. Well, yeah, no, it's, uh, I didn't see that post. I was probably busy doing something, but did it look like it was actually the stomach? I, I didn't see, this was a brief post. I didn't see mm. pictures. I, I, this was all of maybe a few lines and it was one of those situations where you look at it and you think, is this real? <laughs> and then I, I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, want this to be, I don't have an intimate presence much anyway, but I didn't want to, my, my first reaction was to say, do, do you realize you have no idea what you're doing? And then second of all, I, I said to myself, well, look, I don't want, if I make this a thing, you know, it's going to turn into a dog pile where everyone's going to jump on this and then it'll end up, you know, I don't want to give it any more, any more fame than it already had, but yeah, no, I mean, in my mind, at least my first step would be make sure it's a stomach. <laughs> and then number two would be take it to a vet. But if I were doing that procedure, I would sedate it. Um, 
there's different ways to anesthetize a frog. You can use MS-222, which they use commonly in fish medicine. Uh, you can also put uh, isofluorine, which we use in human medicine, I'm pretty sure of, uh, definitely in veterinary medicine. And then you put that in Vaseline and you put it on top of the frog. But sedating the frog adequately is the best way to start. Uh, if it's not the stomach, figure out what it is um, with a veterinarian. Have them determine what's going on as best they can. And then what I would have done if it was the stomach is I would have tried to see if I could get that back in place, um, use a fine uh, a tube or something to push it back towards through the esophagus where it belongs. But uh, cutting it out seems like the dumbest thing you could do because they're not going to digest their food ever again. And so <laughs> I, I'm not surprised uh, with what people do. Uh, it's just not the best way to take care of it. I, I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean, um, if your dog had their stomach stomach doing something weird like that, that's the last thing you'd want to do because they'd be kicking and screaming and uh, yelling bloody murder and trying to bite your face off, which they should be. But uh, frogs feel pain. Amphibians feel pain. It might not be the same neuronal pathway that we feel, uh, but it's there. It had to evolve somewhere uh, where you have a noxious stimulus and you're not going to want to touch that or feel that because it's going to kill you. Uh, think about like something like a fire. There's a reason we feel pain if we touch a flame. Our body's saying, that's not good for you. It's going to kill our tissue. Uh, that had to, um, we're, uh, it had to start somewhere. And so if you're like most people and you just go by Darwin's philosophies, uh, pain had to evolve. It had to get stronger um, with evolution, but it also had to be there kind of from the get-go with these species, uh, fish, things like that, where they're going to feel pain. They don't want to get bitten, eaten by a shark or anything like that, where there's pain. Uh, it's not, it's hard to say, assess fully if it's the same as us, but it's there. And so just assuming your frog's going to feel pain with anything uh, that would be painful for you is where I start. Agreed. Agreed wholeheartedly. Yeah, they've actually done it much. I mean, I'm 30. Uh, veterinarians in their 70s don't always think about pain the same way the new school vets do, but they do a very good job about making sure you know pain is important to control for all species in vet school these days. So that's a huge stride they've made just to make sure patients aren't uncomfortable and they're getting the fentanyl they need or the, the lidocaine CRI they need just so they're comfortable. But we need to assume our frogs are going to feel pain if we do anything that dumb. Yeah, I, I would never, I, I'm sure you agree with me that I would never encourage anyone to do anything no, like no. that. Take it to um, a vet. Yeah. I mean, even at, at the very least, you know, someone who could, I don't want to get into the topic of euthanasia, but at least if if it's if it appears to be a situation where there will be no positive outcome, at least eliminate that pain before it, you know, I don't know. Yeah, and I, I mean, there, there are some hobbyist threads out there on uh, how to euthanize a frog. I don't really want to get into that fully, but... Yeah, I don't um, either, I don't either. Yeah, there, I mean, there's, uh, if you, there's uh, 
good kind of some good resources out there for humane ways of euthanizing frogs if you're ever in a pinch but i just won't touch on that just so people don't know fully how to do it a vet can always do it a lot better i i agree i agree and um, oh, and then the, go ahead no i'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you i i, I interrupt too much me too <laughs> <laughs> um the last thing or one thing i was going to mention it's way back there but uh a one percent bleach solution will kill a uh, chytrid in about a minute whereas a 0.4 percent uh bleach solution requires 10 minutes of contact time so there are studies on how much you need to kill chytrid. And so if anyone ever is worried about chytrid, I would definitely use bleach and dilute it and make sure the frogs don't get access to the, the bleach afterwards, just because that can kill a frog pretty easily. Now, besides chytrid, there are also communicable, communicable diseases. There are opportunistic infections. Now, before... Before exotics were really taken seriously outside of, you know, outside of zoos in terms of veterinary medicine and care, going back in the hobby about 25, 30 years ago, a lot of the frogs that came into the hobby were, were wild caught. And my earliest experiences were, were with wild caught frogs because that was all that was available. Now, there was this infamous term at the time, which was red leg, and it was pretty much the go-to term for any type of disease that affected the frog and it always manifested itself with with you know redness under the legs but nowadays we know that it's not red leg isn't one disease it's a symptom of many different diseases now could you tell me a little bit more about you know the the, the pathology behind the diseases or you know the combination of factors that equal what we would used to call red leg yeah yeah definitely so i mean you summed it up nice in terms of uh it's not only one bacteria or one disease. It's kind of how frogs respond to most of the time a septic bacterial infection. Uh, the most common culprit is a bacteria called Aeromonas hydrophila. But there's also a number of other bacteria, even viruses have been kind of impacted or kind of said to cause it. But what happens is the blood vessels tend to dilate in the, the legs and the ventrum the bottom part of the frog. And that dilation is where you're seeing the reddening. It's just the body's reaction to a systemic bacterial infection. And that they can get edema, things like that. It's all because the body is thinking, oh God, we're on overdrive trying to fight off this infection. But the most common cause is the septic response in a frog is to dilate the vessels in their limbs and on their lower side of their body resulting in a reddening of their legs. And so when I see that most of the time, I'm assuming it's a bacterial infection. I can never say for, for sure, but if you treat for gram negative bacteria with a broad spectrum antibiotic, most of the time you're a little late at that point when you're noticing it, but it, you have a better shot of treating the frog. If you can treat right away with antibiotics, get them to a vet, make sure you're getting the right antibiotics that are going to treat the gram negatives and then do a culture if possible to determine exactly what's causing it. Is it a weird fungus that's causing it or is it actually a bacterial infection? But it's just the pathophysiology of how the frog's responding to systemic illness for the most part. And most of the time that's a gram negative bacterial infection causing the reddening and edema kind of on the lower side of the frog. 
And so they used to think kind of it was just more of a one stem disease, but now they're kind of calling it more bacterial dermatosepticemia, basically meaning there's a systemic infection that's causing the skin to look red. Is it possible to intercede successfully once, you know, an individual has reached that point? Or is it safe to say that, well, once they've reached that, the likelihood of them recovering is extremely low? Well, I like to say never say never and always avoid always. I mean, at that point, it's like if you're septic in the ICU, you need more extensive care. So if if you're able to kind of get the antibiotics in and kill off the infection, uh, keep the frog hydrated with ringer solution, there's a chance. Now, that being said, the prognosis is fairly poor at that point, but it doesn't hurt to try. Um, They can recover if you're able to treat them adequately, make sure they're staying hydrated. At that point, in my mind, food is not as key as kind of electrolyte uh, balancing and antibiotics, but it's close to game over, but it's never game over. If you can treat them adequately, there's a chance they'll recover. It's just not likely once they're showing those signs that they're going to have a good, I'd say 90% of the time they're going to die, 10% uh, they'll live, but why not give them a fighting chance with the proper antibiotics? In your opinion, we've talked about a lot of different disease issues, but do you think, and this may sound like kind of a, kind of a basic question, but what is the overall hardiest and healthiest amphibian that the average hobbyist could keep with minimal, um, with minimal issues, meaning, uh, like for example, like horn frogs, like I don't recommend them to people necessarily as a beginner species because they can be issues that, you know, they can be, I've had some that have been prone to prolapse, dietary issues, et cetera. Um, I mean, I've more steered people towards like white's tree frogs as being a little bit more forgiving and a little bit more hardy. But in your opinion, is there a certain species that you would think you know, the average person might be able to keep from start to finish less likely to need veterinary care? Yeah, I mean, um, I hate to throw anyone under the bus. I don't think he's going to listen to this. Uh, I gave my brother-in-law some leucomelas that I bred um, maybe five or six years ago. And uh, he was pretty sure they all had died. Uh, They were being kept at my mom's house and uh, right north of the Golden Gate Bridge. And Uh, He had just moved with my sister to the city, San Francisco, and uh, he didn't think they were alive. He hadn't seen them for a while. Um, He just thought they were dead. Uh, My brother, my twin brother came home. Uh, We were coming home for the holidays for Christmas, and uh, my brother sees the frogs in the tank uh, still moving about, a little bit emaciated, but hadn't been fed for about 30 to 45 days just because my brother-in-law assumed that they were dead. And uh, we were able to nurse two out of three of them back to health within about a week of just fruit flies, Uh, dusting the fruit flies, making sure they got nutrition. Uh, They went from kind of a body condition score that I would say was closer to a two out of five to about a three to four out of five within a few weeks. So uh, leucomelis in my mind are bulletproof for the most part, if you can attempt to have good husbandry, uh, they don't die easily. My fiance as a kid had a white tree frog and somehow the frog ended up in a pocket and it went through the washing machine 
and it came out alive and was healthy and lived years more. So those two, I definitely think are fairly sturdy frogs. Uh, most of the tree frogs, I don't think are the best beginner frogs. But any dendrobatus, like an erotus or a leucomelis or a white tree frog as a tree frog, I do find fairly hardy. If you're going to give them kind of dusted, supplemented nutrition, keep their humidity kind of adequate, make sure they don't get too hot or too cold, they're pretty hard to kill. That's interesting. You, yeah, you wouldn't think that a dark frog species would make it onto that list, but yeah, you're right. That definitely rings true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Aratus and Lucamellus, the beginner ones, uh, are beginner frogs for a reason. They are fairly hardy if you get them from a good source. Luckily, my brother-in-law had them kind of raised by me and just gifted to him. So they started off real sturdy, and uh, they did fine. He just didn't think they were still in the tank. He hadn't seen them and assumed they were dead. But the cool thing about frogs is they shut down their metabolism if they're not eating. And so they can go a good amount of time without food because they just slow down their basal metabolic rates where they're just hanging out until the food comes back. And so they should be fed frequently. I feed my frogs every two to three days, but if they're not fed, you go away for a week on vacation. They can do fine if you have good kind of uh, springtails and isopods in the tank without being fed for a little bit of time. That's wild about the washing machine. I'm, I'm, still, yeah, I'm I mean, still taking that in. Yeah, she. I mean, she and I met in vet school, and she had had frogs as a kid, and she told me that story, and I didn't believe it, but it's definitely true. Her sisters told me that, her moms told me that, and it just they were young kids that ended up in the pocket and survived the washing machine. <laughs> that's wild. <laughs> that's that's wild. Oh, yeah, I mean, what would you think is the most hardy frog? That individual frog that you just told me about has to be like the king of. I hope it was on a cold wash cycle too, or a. Oh God, I don't know. I'll find out. It pro yeah, I mean, its name was Eduardo. I know that that part. Um, I'll find out what temperature they use. But there's some frogs that are just such great beginner frogs that people should start off with. Pacmen are fairly easy if you can uh, feed them as much as they want to eat. They're just so hungry all the time and. They're kind of boring in my mind. They just sit there, but they're real hardy. Uh, Dendrobatids, I think, are by far the best thing to start with, like a Leucomelis or a Neurotis or an Azurius, I think are all kind of good beginner frogs if you have the tank dialed in, have the husbandry, kind of an idea of what to do. Those frogs, I think, if you can keep it stable, are going to do just fine. Yeah, I guess it. I think the white tree frogs are probably, the, in my opinion, anyway, are probably the hardiest. I've kept them in many, many different ways, and ultimately, I'd like to do an episode about them. I'd like to get someone on who deals with them specifically. But I mean, I've I've never had an issue. I, I had years back. I had some with, um, you know, they came in probably imported from Indonesia with rostral abrasions, but. You know, once you stop keeping them in a bare tank with a screen lid, that kind of stops and they just sort of heal on their own. But it's 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 a matter of debate. I mean, if I were to pick one, I'd probably say that the um, 
the White's Tree Frogs. If I were to recommend it to a beginner or like a younger person, that's that would be my personal choice. Yeah, no, I definitely, I think, I really have been looking into the blue-faced ones. They're gorgeous. Um, I didn't want to ever feed crickets to my frogs just because they're just such a pain to get and to gut load and get everything right with the nutrition. But I've started feeding crickets to my Cotronella granulosa, and it's been a game changer in terms of their overall kind of well-being and their size and their coloration where I'm thinking would a tree frog like a fringe tree frog or something like that be fun in the future if I'm gonna have crickets around all the time whites I think they're fun if I have a kid in the future definitely would love to have a white's tree frog for them just so they have something easy and fun that they can hold a little bit without stressing to death yeah, they're fun and they're really photogenic too. <laughs> I put, Extremely. I put I put a video up on my my Instagram page maybe a while back and it was just one of my white tree frogs just sort of sitting there on his piece of cork bark and more people saw that video <laughs> and liked it than like anything else I had combined. <laughs> so I guess it was yeah, like, yeah. They're very cute. I mean, they're a good frog for the new hobbyist and the old hobbyist who appreciates how cool they are. And so I started off with dart frogs. So my bias is towards the easy dart frogs, but my theory is the pets they sell at Petco tend to be fairly hardy. <laughs> and I've seen white's tree frogs there and Pac-Man frogs for the most part. Yeah. That's well, that's their, their bread and butter species. Now, before we wrap up, we, we kind of talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but UV, UVB, UVA, do you have an opinion on it in terms of amphibian care? And, and just, I mean, just in a very general sense, I know it's going to vary probably from species to species because the, you know, the, the diversity of amphibian species is out the window. But I mean, do you have any thoughts about UVA, UVB? Uh, yeah, no, I definitely do think so. I had a discussion with this last night. Um, my fiance and I just got, we rescued a snake uh, for my work, a little bald python. And she's a veterinarian too. She deals with snakes at the Vancouver Aquarium. Uh, I have a buddy, Walter Merker, Dr. Merker, who's a big time snake keeper. He's a veterinarian, uh, does great with frogs and snakes. And I asked him, is a UVB lamp necessary for a nocturnal bald python not a frog but kind of same concept and he goes necessary and beneficial are two different things and that's kind of how i like to see uv be with frogs is the fact that they may not need it um they don't really kind of there's anecdotal evidence that they don't really need it to kind of get their calcium and uh, vitamin d that being said, if you look at Europe, a lot of the European keepers with large obligates uh, use UV, UVB radiation or lighting uh, to help the frogs out and get better colorations. And so if they're getting kind of a darker red because you're using UVB lights, in my mind, that's beneficial for their overall well-being. That being said, the only frogs I keep with a UVB uh, lamp are my glass frogs that sleep on top of a leaf because that's what they're going to get in the wild. It's not necessary, but it, I think it is highly beneficial to at least get them some exposure. 
and it's not going to absorb through glass tops. A lot of keepers will either put a little mesh venting over and then put the lamp on one or two days a week for a few hours just so the frogs can soak it in. I keep my glass frogs with about a quarter of the tank has a mesh at the front, and I'll just put the lamp over that all the time just so they can get the UVB that they would get in the wild on the leaves from the kind of dorsal side of the leaf. But it's not necessary. There's no evidence that they need it, but it's never going to hurt, and it's only really going to help them. Whether you're keeping uh, large obligates and their coloration's not coming out well as tadpoles uh, to metamorphosis, usually you can fix that by using UVB at least a few days a week. And if you put it on an area where it's going to get the bromeliad, the coloration is going to pop a lot stronger than without UVB lighting. And so it's, it's something where you're going to help the frogs out. Uh, it's not needed, but it's never going to hurt. It's really only going to help their overall kind of replication of nature. I've heard that from quite a few people actually that um they, they it's not it's not necessary but it, it is beneficial yeah it's, it's, they don't need it um for vitamin d and calcium and kind of the whole synthesis pathway but it's only going to help the frogs overall it's so cheap to do and it's not going to hurt i've actually seen a lot of my plants do better with a uvb bulb than with my nice leds and it's probably because they're getting the lighting they would get in the wild. And so my goal, at least with my own collection, is to try and recreate the natural world as best possible. And we have the sun, and that's our kind of light source, our nutrient source. So if we can give them a little bit of lighting that's natural, I, I do think it's going to really help them out. Yeah, definitely definitely want to you know maintain that goal of creating as natural an environment as you possibly can. Well, why don't you give us your website and your info? Because I know that, I mean, I looked over your website. You've got quite a bit of stuff on there, but you wanted to share it with the listeners before we before we wrap up? Yeah, oh, definitely. So my Instagram handle, uh, when I was in vet school, I got a little bit of a hard time for posting too many frog pictures. So I made an Instagram called Logan's Endurance, basically just meaning my last name and frogs. And so I thought that would be a fitting website because it's the same as my Instagram handle. So I made logansandurance.com and it's still in the works. I'm going to try and add to it and kind of add more services that people can do um, in terms of kind of testing, things like that, or vets to contact me. But they have my email through kind of the bottom kind of contact me area. But uh, I'm going to start putting up some services Kittred testing, things like that, or histopath through Dr. Ozaboff at uh, University of Florida, where we can kind of just make it a, a one-stop area for people to try and at least seek the vet care they want for their frogs or have help with the testing the frogs may need. And so it, it's a very basic website. I'm still working on it. Life just needs to slow down a little bit, but it's logansandorans.com. And if you find me on Instagram, I do have the link kind of the top of my handle. Yeah, and you got some good pictures on there too. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, frogs are my passion. Yeah. They always have been. They always will be. But uh, if you guys need help with anything, uh, 
do send me an email. Just have your vet contact me. I don't mind helping out in any way. Great. Well, listen, everyone, I want to thank uh, Dr. Andrew Logan for being my guest. It's been a very, very enlightening show. And as usual, I've learned a lot, and I want to thank him for being a guest on and sharing some of his expertise with us. So everyone out there, take care of yourselves. Catch up with you again soon.